Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Long Walk to Nowhere podcast. I'm Patrick Butler and I'm here with author of Long Walk to Nowhere, Alan Munn. So two weeks ago we did an episode, a podcast episode, which had a lot of listeners and uh, a lot of comments as well, where we discussed uh, different topics that interested us and we thought we'd follow that format this week. Um, so for this week's format, we're going to discuss a few different things about current events and politics which are tied in one way or another, either to Zimbabwe or to Africa. And the first one I wanted to start off with is one which has been in the news for a while, but um, which has just sort of had a conclusion, which is the Oriole College and the Statue of Cecil Rhodes um, story. Now, uh, the college has finally, even against the recommendation of Oxford University, decided to keep the Statue of um, Cecil Rhodes up in what they call a keep and explain policy. Um, so Alan, I know we've discussed this a little bit. Um, I follow it because in part my father went to Oriel College and, and loved it and I've been to visit a few times and it's a beautiful college. And I thought it was a really interesting story because of the so many different sides of the debate have, which have come into it. And I was wondering how you feel about the story and about the decision that Oriel College have taken regarding the Statue of Rhodes. Yes, I, I feel relieved, Patrick. That they've that common sense has prevailed, because I always said that if they if they were going to remove the statue, then simultaneously they should remove uh, the you know the the, the the trust that Rhodes set up uh, for the Rhodes scholars uh, internationally, because to keep one without the other, to me would be the height of hypocrisy. Cecil Rhodes may have said and perhaps done a few things that not you know not everybody was in favour of, but he was a philanthropist. He was a, a good person, really, in, in the sense that he left his legacy for the betterment of, of mankind, irrespective of race, irrespective of culture. And to just suddenly say, you know, to take history, and because um, history is not a prison, and, and you know, just to take it and make it irrelevant is, is so wrong. Uh, so I, I think that the decision that they made was, was very welcome, certainly for, for, for Rhodesian people and Zimbabweans too. Yes, I, I think it's be, because it's also um, what's, what's really interesting in the current climate at the moment is when a lot of uh, institutions, I mean, for example, the head of the National Trust has just resigned because he was trying also to say that he had to decolonize the National Trust. And there were so many complaints at the last meeting. Normally, they're very civil and, and quite easygoing, these meetings. In a Excuse long... me, well, what does he mean by decolonize the National Trust? Well, what, what they, I mean, it's, it, this is a rather uh, large generalization because the National Trust, of course, takes care of so many properties. But the idea was that rather than... Um, having properties, the main focus, of, you know, for example, with Chartwell and uh, Winston Churchill's property and a lot of other properties in Britain, the idea was that you would put at the forefront um, of these properties their links with slavery, and that would become the most important thing, and you would try and remove yeah. anything from the houses that would have to do. And a lot of people... But sla said, slavery and colonisation, I mean, you know, they, they, they're not linked. 
No, and also what a lot of people said is they said, you know, we don't want to go to the National Trust. We, we can, you know, we're all grown-ups. We can all understand the links that, that went on. What they said is, you know, you can't empty out every single National Trust home uh, because of, of links to it. What they said is if you want to explain it, they said, great. But they felt, you know, it's also happened at Kew Gardens where they said they had to decolonize the the gardens. And a lot of people were said, what do you mean? Uh, does that mean the name of the plants? Because they might have happened to have been discovered by European botanists and scientists. And um, again, that caused quite a fury. So it, it's all the, all these stories which we're talking about, which are very relevant as well, because um, I will get into it, I think, a bit later on this podcast. But, you know, these are discussions which... Mugabe was is was constantly bringing up and which are still very much part of African politics in South Africa as well. And yeah, Mugabe was using the, the colonization and white people as scapegoats for his own uh, inefficient, corrupt uh, management, mismanagement of a country that became his own private company, him and his followers. Um, uh, so, you know, did, uh, and... Uh, they were scapegoats. A lot of what is said about about colonization and about you know the botanists say from Scotland who discovered a plant in India, you know, uh, good on him. Uh, what's wrong with that? Where is the link? Where's the link of that to slavery? Why? De- what's this talk about decolonization? Of, of plants and of, of institutions. It's just not relevant. It's not common sense, Patrick. Well, also, I mean, from my point of view as a historian, at least someone who studied history very in-depth, um, colonization is is universal pretty much because all of human history is, is a melting pot and, and colonization. I mean, the first, uh, you know, anything that we use today, if you wanted to decolonize everything, and this wouldn't just be focused, you know, say, for example, against white Europeans. The first systems of writing were invented because the Akkadian and Sumerian empires needed to record taxes and agrarians in the empire that they were building by conquest, not by, by peaceful means, by any means. And so if you want to look at all systems of human thought and etc., when you, you look at it from a historical point of view, you, if you want to call it colonization, colonization is a universal trait. Um, original tribes of Israel had to colonize land um, when they were captured in Babylon as a tribe. You know, um, almost every empire. So you had Greek thought, which was taken by Alexander the Great to the east when Genghis Khan um, came. He, he, it was a colonial project by the Mongols who came all the way to the gates of Eastern Europe. And they brought Asian culture, Mongolian culture, if you want to be more specific, um, so it's it's been a universal thing historically. There's no. It, it, I think what's meant often in the modern parlance is what is c- perceived to be a uniquely white European phenomenon. Um, but as a historian's point of view, and David Abulafia, who's um, one of the most highly respected historians at Cambridge, made the same point. He said that it's 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 ridiculous from an intellectual point of view, and certainly from a historian's point of view, you could never get away with it because it's so patently. Um, not correct or incorrect rather uh to say that 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 colonization is strictly a white european phenomenon it's it's simply not true or almost all of human history has been colonization and mixing of of races and civilizations and most of the time by force and yes so, well my my book long walk to nowhere explains that yes absolutely and, so, and, so certainly in, in africa and uh, certainly in africa. whites didn't invent uh, colonization in africa and that, but you know, it's not just the historians and the academics who, who, who 
who have every right to feel concerned about this. It's the, the ordinary chap like me. But we, you know, we also... my, my whole history, my whole life, my whole culture, you know, all the things I love and hold dear, are they to just be removed and destroyed just because of some academic who says that, you know, uh, you know, it isn't right because he thinks it or she thinks it isn't right? It's just so, so sad that this is happening in the world today. But I think I think there's a lot of um, I, I think there's a lot of common sense in that. It's not I don't think it's entirely I think the media also because the media often tends to concentrate on certain people and movements in particular not i don't think everyone's necessarily in agreement all the time but i mean debate is enormously healthy i think we'd agree on that we we want more debate in fact and the point about the absolutely yes i mean my i remember being brought up with stories of my my father went to oriel college quite a long time ago comparatively now but you know i'd always hear stories about roads not all of which were positive um and some of which which were and well, think, not all of the stories of Rhodes were positive. But uh, of almost no human figure, you know, no matter how, who, you, who you admire, I, I, I think it would be almost an impossibility to find uh, a person, and, and nor is it really a human phenomenon to find perfect. Don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. I think we exactly. try and find people who do. I mean, religions are based, especially, for example, in, in Christianity, a lot of saints are sinners beforehand. St. Augustine was a playboy and a womanizer, before he became a saint, uh, yes. there, there was a past. And, and this idea of redemption and forgiveness has been called certainly to monotheistic religions. Um, historically, the idea that you could do wrong and then be forgiven for wrong and then you do right based on experience. And I think what's happening now in the culture, which is really interesting, is that we're going trying to go back and find perfection in the past. But the problem is it simply doesn't exist. It doesn't uh, exist. It doesn't exist in anybody or in anything. Because, as you say, you have to, you know, you have to, you learn from from what you did wrong. But Jesus you, College, for example, there's there's another example of another. Jesus College is one of the the richest colleges at Cambridge, a very old college. And Rustat, who was one of the great benefactors, I believe he gave something like two thousand pounds in the mid sixteen hundreds, which would be the equivalent to almost half a million pounds now. He has uh, in the church, uh, the chapel rather at Jesus College, it has this very beautiful chapel and he, he has a plaque and um, statue which is um, put into one of the alcoves and a lot of people have said it has to be torn down and moved to another part of the college or hidden away and the authorities of the college have said you do realize that first of all you would be destroying what is one of the the great english architectural marvels and they said it would cost a fortune to have it removed and that money would have to come out of somewhere when when you know it have to come out of donations and so on and so forth but they also said you can explain who Rushdat was and why he might have been wrong in the past. But it, for his time, it would have been nothing unusual. Just as, you know, at the same time that he was doing that, Arab slave traders, you know, would have been castrating hundreds of thousands of African slaves a year at the same time. So, you know, if you wanted to, to universally go back into the past, well, what would you do? Would you go to Qatar now and say to the Qatar Emirates that you have to tear down your monuments and civilizations for what you did as well. I think what a lot of people say is, is the focus seems entirely on, on one section, and it also seems to be striving away from debate and understanding the past. If you take away the figure of Rashtat and you don't teach him anymore, it might make you feel better not to see him in the thing, but then you won't understand why he might have done what he did and also why he was wrong. And you have to explain to people why something was wrong. You can't just sweep it under the carpet. 
And I think the problem with all of this is trying to hide the past, trying to remove everything. Well, then you... you never... They're actually trying to change the past. But you, you never... Not just hide it, not just hide it. They want to change it. But I would so argue that... So that it suits the, you know, it suits their current uh, agenda, their, their hidden agenda, let's say. But like... With... Uh, and, uh, and when you say there, who, who's, who, who do we mean when we say there? Well, I think I think that's the whole point that a lot of people get frustrated in the media because, of course, the media is very selective. The media will often say, you know, people or some people or whatever, and then you have to say, who who is it? And who who are these people that that are trying to rule our lives, change history, take the relevance out of what we who we are, the you know, the basis of why and who we are? Who are these people? Uh, you know, are they some are they somebody from from another planet? Are they gods floating in on a on some kind of spaceship? Who who are these people? But also um, another another I think relevant story has been the last week the co-founder of Black Lives Matter in America, Patrice Cullors, um, who described herself on on the the official page of, of Black Lives Matter as a trained Marxist. And Socialist was discovered to have bought four properties worth over $4 million, all with Black Lives Matter money. She bought a house on the seafront in Malibu and two luxury properties in Los Angeles and a ranch, renovated ranch, with thousands of acres and was looking to buy a mansion in the Bahamas as well. And She wasn't related to Mugabe, was she? Because uh, <laughs> that's exactly what he, he did. He was also a self-confessed Marxist, you know, a person of the people, somebody who was liberating the, the poor, undertrod people. And I mean, I think he, 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 he probably has even more properties than, than she has. But I think what's uh, interesting as well in that story, no, you're, you're absolutely right, I think, to make the link with Mugabe and many other corrupt politicians, particularly in Africa with the focus who, who declared themselves as socialists, but also you found them uh, everywhere else. You found them in the Soviet Union and every other system where, where there has been the hypocrisy of it. Um, but... What's really interesting in this one is is it does tie in because a lot of the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, which has been really focused and accepted in the media universally, have asked for the removal of statues, have asked for the removal of this. And then you come down. Corruption is universal. We found corruption everywhere. It's not just in the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. Um, Cor corruption, is co corruption is colorblind. It's, it's absolutely colorblind. colorblind. So we're not yes. we're not focusing on, on the fact no, that she's black. No. What we're talking but, about is is why do they get the right in the media to have such a, a, a voice and be accepted almost automatically? And we have to change so much of our culture because of that movement. And then you discover the hypocrisy underneath it. You know, the families, not George Floyd, but Breonna Taylor and the other... Um, black person who was shot by the police who was who was unarmed um they said that they haven't seen a single penny from black lives matter not in legal fees not in helps for living help for living costs anything after their tragedies literally nothing and black lives matter recently released that they made over a hundred million dollars last year and its co-founder the so-called trained marxist socialist has been buying up millions and millions of dollars of, of property all over the united states using that money and it's more that, you know, the media really has, has an obligation to, to ask difficult questions, and, and, but also to focus on stories, you know, not just to accept the given yes, word. It's, going, it's, it's, going, to be very, it's going to be a very, very interesting time will tell uh, what actually transpires as a result of, of these findings. Because, you know, we all, all want to see equality in the world. We want to see, I mean, all lives matter. There's only one human race. 
and no one is free until everybody is free. We all want to see this. Anyone with a brain wants to see this. But to become aggressive, you know, to, to, to segment our, our, our human race, to segment it, into, you know, by color, religion, by culture, by whatever else, by, 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 you know, male, female, young, old, fat, thin, tall, short, you know, this is divide and rule tactics. And no one's going to win it at the end of the day. No one. I mean, what is our objective, Patrick? Is our objective to, to have a world that, that you know, that has a focus on peace and equality? Yes, that is our focus if we have a brain. So let's stop, you know, let's stop looking for scapegoats. Let's stop dividing and ruling. Let's all become, you know, sensible people and use our common sense. Well, I think that's very much the message of your book and your story. And I think something that we can't get enough, get across enough strongly to, to listeners and to potential readers of the book, which I yes, highly recommend. Yes, and most of the people who are commenting on my book. But which know, is great are, are because when they read people. your book. They're they, young black people. Yes, mm. absolutely. You've had an iPad. I've had, you know, the most wonderful comments as well for, from young black people in Africa, but outside of, of Africa and America and, and all over the world, quite frankly. And, and the one thing which I've always loved and been very surprised in the current climate is that, first of all, all their comments are so positive. Alan and I, I think have always said, you know, we're always shocked that we don't get more negative or angry comments, especially given what you hear in the media all the time, which makes you often wonder how overcooked a lot of stories are in the media and in the mainstream um, media. But also they've always said, you know, Alan's book tells a story about Africa. It's about it is about equality. It's about living together. It's it's about a message of harmony. There's nothing divisive in the message. And even though, you know, you would, according to some sources, you would say, oh, well, you know, Alan is, is a privileged white male or whatever would be the current expression. But that's never been the conversation we've had with any um, of, of the of, of our listeners or readers. They, they've always been wonderful sort of in-depth conversations about how can we make Africa better how can we make the world a better place? How we can stop corruption everywhere? Corruption, you know, is present not just in Africa, but it's present in China. It's present in our society. It's, it's, it's present all over the world in America and England. There's no exception to it. Unfortunately, it happens. It's a human story. And I think that's that's the great thing about your book is, is for people, when they really read it and see the story, it's a human story above all else. And... Well, I hope so. I hope I hope that message, you know, gets through because that's the whole point of writing the book, you know, is, is to clear up this misconception about, you know, putting people in boxes. And I think this this um, post-colonial, the Western post-colonial guilt syndrome, uh, has a huge, has had a huge part to play in in this disruption of. Of, of peace because pe people are, are feeling guilty about things that cannot be changed and the only way to ameliorate a problem is to not dwell on its past but look at it now and, and say to yourself gosh how can we resolve it and make it better for the future but to, 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 to dwell on the negative parts of history and forget you know and forget about all the good that happened in history. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the good that happened in history. 
you know, if, if, if in the Second World War, the First World War, we hadn't conquered the, the, the Nazis in the Second World War, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be talking in such a free way, in such a free manner as we are today. Well, I think I think that's 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 again a, an argument from a historian's point of view, which makes a lot of sense because, on the whole, humanity has done more positives than negatives because otherwise we wouldn't be here in terms of medicine and, you know, all of these are supposed to be universal benefits for mankind, um, transportation, medicine. You, you know yes, it. and I would argue, Patrick, that that many of the the Africans in the diaspora who have now become Let's just take Britain as an example. I have many uh, African friends who now look upon themselves as British. And it's because of colonialism that they had that chance to do that. And we've learned, I would, I would argue also, the argument is we've learned a lot from them in, in Britain. I mean, certainly there was far more tension in Britain, as far as I understand it, when immigrants first arrived from Africa or the West Indies. And over time, I think our society has opened up and learned. So it's, it's a benefit. But I, th th that's the historical benefit is that human beings have, have always uh, mixed in ways and there have always been problems. We, we don't deny that. And, and very serious. But, uh, you know, you, you could find, you know, there were court, black courtiers, African courtiers, if you, if you prefer, at the court of Peter the Great in Russia, you know, that you find in Tudor England, um, there were many very interesting uh, African figures, you know, going, but even f much further back into history, you know, in Rome, in ancient Rome or Greece, you already had cultural mixing uh, between Africans and things. This is not, not, not new historically. I think, unfortunately, there seems to be a lot of, which is what it always comes back to for me is we're not, it's not as if we're teaching too much history. We're, we're never teaching enough. Um, we're, yes, we're and never, no. And I think all that past, you know, you talked about those, that cultural history, and it wasn't based upon colour. Uh, those chaps that were all in, in, in the courts and so on, they were there because of their of their intellect and because of their social, you know, niceties. They were there because they were teaching the others something, something new and something different. And the, and the recipe, the mix, so so happened to you know to to have a positive effect at the end of the day. But it wasn't the fact that he was black or she was black. It was because they were accepted because they were they were decent, good people. Exactly, and I you, think you take the NHS today, huge in in, in Britain. You know, it's under great stress because of COVID, and of course, there's this always this horrible, ominous threat that the Americans are going to take over the NHS and use all the the medical details to their benefit and so on. Okay, this is all conjecture, but I mention the NHS because. If you look at the NHS today, how many black Zimbabwean nurses are holding up that NHS? Do you know that some of the finest nurses in the world come from Zimbabwe? Yeah, absolutely. Abs absolutely. And they're wonderful, wonderful people. Having, having been treated uh, in the NHS and having been treated by Kenyan and, and Zimbabwean nurses, I, I, can, I can fully confirm that. They're, they're absolutely wonderful. We're, we're so lucky. Uh, and not only are they professional people, but they have a natural, loving, caring empathy. They do. Absolutely, yeah. they do. And yeah. I, now, just going on from, from the, the, this topic, I wanted to go into a story which was um, in the, one of the front pages of The Guardian a few days ago, which was a story about the anger at a statue of Nahanda being put up amidst the collapsing economy in Zimbabwe. And I thought it was really interesting because I hadn't heard of Nahanda. 
Now, I will get to, to it in a minute because I know you do, and I'm, I'm really interested to hear, hear what you say and your thoughts. But I thought the article was actually really fascinating because this really big new statue of Nahanda had been um, unveiled in Harare and it had caused quite a sensation. And the Zimbabwean novelist uh, Tsitsi Dangarembeka, sorry, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing it, had said that the unveiling of the statue was absurd. Um, he said that the absurdity and misguidedness of co-opting a historical figure as a partisan symbol um, at a time when Zimbabwe's economic prospects are, are so terrible. And a lot of people apparently found it absolutely ridiculous in terms of the timing. But anyway, I think you, you know a lot more about Nahanda. I was really interested and I've been reading a bit more, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, well she was known as Mboya. Mboya. Mboya means, it's a respectful term, it means grandmother. Like, like you'd say, um, Sikuru uh, for, for grandfather, for, for a respected senior person. Because the Shona culture, all most African cultures, have a huge respect for the elderly. Because, of course, they are the ancestral worship. Uh, you know, you, you, when you're older, you, you're the one that's going to die next. So let's be good to you and kind to you because when you die you're going to take the message of how we've been treating you back up to the ancestors uh, and then of course the ancestors have control they are the ones who will make sure the rain comes that you're healthy that your children are well and so on so there is a huge respect for for the elderly and and for people like Nahanda, Mboya Nahanda. i mean she was a spirit medium of the Suzuru Shona people, um, uh, medium of the of, of Nahanda, and uh, a female Shona uh, Mohondoro, which is you know a very respected ancestral spirit, um, and of course she 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 was feared by the by the white uh, um, settlers because she, she she must have been you know you must remember that in the Shona culture it's quite a a male dominated what well, certainly was in those in those days uh, culture and this this lady must have been quite somebody to have um, been able to command uh, such a respect from 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 certainly from the male and the female side of, of the Shona society um, but she, she had the spiritual uh, almost phenomenological way of carrying on and, and um, it, it probably was quite scary and quite unsettling for 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 the the white people and I think when when the whites first arrived there was there was harmony between the two but um, you know I think when the the, the whites started taxing uh, people for on on land and so on and so forth this upset them and like you said before, in, uh, historically, taxes have often been the, the prime cause of, of problems. And I think they, you know, this new kind of system did, didn't go down well with, with her. But if I were a Shona, I would be very respectful of Mbuya Nahanda. But I'm actually a white African, and uh, I have my side of the story too. But that doesn't mean that I won't I won't respect Mboya Nahanda, and I think to have a statue of Mboya Nahanda is a really good thing, because um, as a white African I think that, because I want to know 
what the history, the true truth of my homeland, Zimbabwe, was. And Mbuya Nahanda was very much part of it. She may not have been good and kind to my people, but nonetheless, she was there. I don't want to change that. I, I, I want to learn about that because there are two sides to that story. Just as Cecil John Rhodes' statue should never have been pulled down in, you know, in, in, in Zimbabwe. Uh, because he, he was a, an integral part of the building of that country. It wouldn't be the country it is today. Well, it, sadly, the, the country it is today is, is a catastrophe. But all the buildings, all the infrastructures that were there when Mugabe took over wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for the British South African Company and the people that grew from there onwards. Helped always by the Shona and the Ndebele people. So to pull down, you know, a statue of Rhodes was wrong. Just as it's wrong to say, it's, you know, you shouldn't have one of Mboya and Ahanda. Of course you should. It's all part of the history of that country. I understand, of course, at the moment in Zimbabwe, the people there are starving. You know, all this, this talk in the, in the 1980s and 90s about liberating all the people, it just hasn't happened so the people are distraught. They're trying to survive. And when they see the administration spending millions and millions putting up the statue, they say, well, gosh, you know, we haven't got any food. Our children are starving. They, are, they, they, they don't go to school. Where's, all, where's everything gone? Where's it all gone? It's just disappeared. Now you're bringing in the statue, and who's paying for it? That's their argument. But the principle of having the statue all things being equal, I think was right. And what do you think about the claim that her remains are, are here in England? I mean, who's to say? I, I would say no. Um, I, don't, I don't think that that would be. An, and I think that if it were so, I have enough faith in the British system to say that the, the British people would return them because I think it, if they do have them, it would be wrong of them to keep that. You know, it would, it would be very wrong of them to keep them. But I don't think they, the British people have those remains. I think that was a Mugabe story. Another one of his sort of built-in stories to, to, to damn the whites, to damn colonialism, to damn anything that, that wasn't what he professed was right. So I don't believe that the British people have that. But if they have, I would say to them, return it. Now, that... Um... I wanted to go on to one final story for today, which is um, in today's uh, Times of London, there was a big obituary on Nick Downey, who was a former SAS um, paramedic and, and very experienced soldier who went on to become a documentary maker in the 60s and 70s. And uh, part of the obituary, which I thought was very interesting, was that he was in Rhodesia with Lord Richard Sissel, uh, who was a former Grenadier Guards officer who, whose family had a lot of links with Rhodesia. And they were together in the bush in, in April of 1978 when they ran into Zandler fighters and two of the bullets killed Sissel, according to the obituary, one in the chest. And uh, Downey tried to save his life and, and he couldn't, um, even though he was very skilled. He, he just, Sissel died, bled out within a few minutes. And the, what I thought was very interesting about the obituary is the obituary says that it's Sissel's uh, memorial at God's Chapel, which was a very high profile event in England. Apparently, according to the article, it says that it's one of the factors that brought Smith's regime to an end. And again, the article puts it that the British establishment had been losing heart in its tacit 
support for him and Downey then did a documentary about this which was called Frontline Rhodesia which was put out by Thames Television at the time uh, which was meant to be very good but anyway I, I wanted to just see what your thoughts are about it because it's always interesting to hear about this story at, uh, about Rhodesia and that section of history in the, in the current news and um, I'm curious to see what you think about that. Yes I, I think that the, the British people, you, you mentioned a tacit support for, for, for Ian Smith's government. Um, I think that the, the British people never wanted to see um, Ian Smith's government survive. Um, there, there are times when I, I think about this and I can understand. I mean, you know, anyone who declared a unilateral declaration of, of independence against the crown perhaps uh, shouldn't deserve the support of the British people. Um, but when one goes deeper into it, and I haven't got the time now to do that, the book will tell you about this. Of course, uh, one understands why Smith was boxed into a corner and had no option but to do that. But to do it so impulsively was to take Rhodesia away from the conference table and, of course, that, you know, the UDI suddenly declared that uh, Rhodesia could never negotiate internationally or become legal again. So the tacit support that the British, the Times say the British people had, I don't think was, was, he, was, was, was relevant because it didn't exist. Uh, I think uh, when it comes to, 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 to Ian Smith's government, the British people just wanted to see an end to that and to see Mugabe and Cornwall take over. Um, uh, the internal settlement uh, that Maggie Thatcher agreed to was renounced and the Lancaster House Agreement was uh, predetermined and um, there was the British people, the, not the British people, the British government at the time wanted to see, they washed their hands of Ian Smith, uh, Bishop Muzarera, and just see Mugabe be placed in power because you know, he was the popular figure of the time and they then washed their hands. It was somebody else's problems in Barbie after that. And, of course, look what happened. Uh, you know, the, it was just a shambles at the moment. Catastrophe. Because the, the people at the time didn't support and understand what Ian Smith was all about. Um, the principle of, of what he was all about. I know he said silly things like never in a thousand years will there be black rule. That was a ridiculous thing for him to have said. But then he said some very, very sensible things as well. And, um, you know, he, he also said premature handover will become one person, one vote once. And it's exactly what happened. Um, you know, Rhodesia had the finest uh, uh, infrastructure in Africa. The, the best civil service in the world, most professional. All these things Mugabe inherited, and Smith said, if you hand over without a proper handover procedure and time to, to, to teach people and learn, this country will, will collapse. And so Br Britain never had a tacit, uh, in my book, never. And I mean, I know from personal experience, I mean, I, I, I was negotiating with people like David Owen you know, and, uh, you know, it was this, the foreign secretary at the time. And um, through the September declaration, we were negotiating with Andrew Young, all kinds of people. 
and, and and the sentiments were always with Mugabe. They just wanted to see that happen. They didn't they didn't really care about. And when you go back to your to to, to the, the Thistle family, I mean, they they were wonderful supporters of of what they believed would be a democratic Africa. And today, I have huge respect for that family. Um, and I think it was a great, great tragedy that uh, you know that he was shot like that uh, in, in such a such a tragic way. Uh, but but to answer the question, um, the handover to Mugabe was was a predetermined thing. No question about that. Well, thank you, Alan. Well, that, that was fascinating summing up of that story. And thank you for the input. And thank you so much for today. And to all our listeners, as always, please never hesitate to send us some comments about anything we've discussed today or anything you'd like us to discuss. We're always open to your views and to discussing anything on the podcast um, that's relevant or interesting to this topic. And we look forward uh, to getting this out to you and, and uh, doing another podcast soon. <laughs>